and read through some of Mark chapter 12 as well. I got a new Bible this week, so I'm excited. I'll be reading from the uh, English Standard Version. It's uh, it's Bible. I was at the Rainbow Bookstore. By the way, they're going out of business, in case you didn't know that. Uh, So hop on down there and get uh, 20 or 30% off of all things. But anyways, um, this is the Christ. What's funny about that? Uh, This is Christ in all of Scripture, Gospel, Transformation, Bible, Grace for all of life. And so I I was flipping through that, and I was like, because we bought Jude, uh, my four-year-old, the... uh, kid version of the Jesus Storybook Bible where all scripture points to Jesus, and uh, so I saw this, I was like, man, I gotta get this, this is the adult version of that, so, uh, although I did like his version, and read it quite often, so, um, man, we're, we're going to be in Mark, um, and I, I just got to be honest and say that this, uh, this sermon was kind of timely for me as I began to work through it, and um, I, I wrestled with a lot of things uh, as I wrote this because of just uh, and, and I'll share a little bit of it here in just a minute with you guys, but um, just to let you know, man, it's about to get real up in here, right? And uh, so you just uh, buckle up, and, uh, and uh, man, just again, just praying that the Holy Spirit just uh, moves through here, and, um, and, and it's going to be good. So uh, I'd like to open us up with prayer, and then I am going to read, starting in verse Mark chapter 11, verse 27. And just to kind of set this up for you a little bit here, uh, this is like just a couple days uh, before Jesus actually goes to the cross. And it's, man, the, the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're just giving Jesus down the road. Uh, I mean, they are asking him questions. They're trying to trick him and trap him. And, uh, man, they're just, they're just doing all kinds of things. And in this passage specifically, they begin to question Jesus' authority. And Jesus, uh, like he always does, really doesn't answer their question directly, but he asks them a question. And of course, they, you know, Jesus, as always, kind of stumps them, and they're like, we can't answer your question. And so then Jesus begins to tell this parable that we're going to read as an answer to their their question. And it's good. It's awesome. I'm excited. Are you guys excited? All right. I, I can feel it. I can feel the excitement. All right. Well, let's pray, and we'll get started. Father, again, we just come before you, and I pray that as we break open your word, God, that your spirit would just move, um, and that, you're, uh, that we would just, you would open our hearts and our minds, God, that we would be willing to just hear your words, God, and examine our own life, God, in areas that it may not be uh, pretty, God, in areas where we just may not uh, feel comfortable, but God, that you would just convict us, and that, that most importantly, that we would see ourselves for who we are, and that we would see you for who you are, God, and it would just drive us to the cross, God, and we would be freed and liberated in that, and that's my prayer this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 27, this is what it says. It says, and they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, this is Jesus and his disciples, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. 
was the baptism of John, this is John, the uh, forerunner of Jesus, um, John the Baptist, says, in the bat- he says, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why, did, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. However, he launches into the parable, and he really tells them. So this is how it goes. And Jesus began to speak to them in parables. He says, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and he dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. And he leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come, and he will destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? This is from Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And the religious leaders, scribes, and Pharisees were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. I don't know about you, but I, I, I think you know, nobody likes to be wrong. Nobody likes to be told that what they're doing isn't right. Would you agree? Right? We just don't like that. I, I love, I found this Mark Twain uh, quote and I thought it was appropriate, and this is what he says. He says, listen closely, he says, it ain't what you don't know that gets you in trouble, it's what you know for sure that just ain't so, right? You guys ever been in those situations where you've, you've been in a disagreement with somebody, and you are certain, man, that you are just right? I mean, you, you're passionate about it, you are fighting tooth and nail, but at some point in the disagreement, it takes a left turn, and you realize, wait a minute, maybe I am wrong. But even so, we don't like to admit it. We just say, well, I'm done with this conversation, right? Before they really expose, yeah, I'm done. I'm done. We just walk away. I'm done with it. I'm done with it. Part of my wife's job is to train people, and, and one of her pet peeves is when she points out something that they've missed. Maybe they've missed a step in one of the processes or they forgot to do a specific task, and their response is always, oh, yeah, I knew that. I knew that. You guys ever do that Somebody points out something that you've, you've done wrong, and you're like, oh, I knew that, I knew that. I, I, I realized that, I knew that. Why do we do this? I think because nobody likes, hear me out on this, I, don't think, I think nobody likes that deep, down, embarrassing feeling that we're wrong. You know that feeling you get, like, oh, yeah, I'm wrong. And if someone challenges this, we are quick to defend it and actually stirs inside of us these emotions that really evoke anger within us. We simply don't like it. For example, I have shared before, man, that I have struggled with 
selfishness. Now, I tend to be self-centered. Now, we probably all could go around the room and be like, yeah, I'm a selfish person. Yeah, I'm a selfish person. But you don't understand, okay? Like, I'm just going to be totally vulnerable here with you guys, and I'm just going to lay it out there, but just remember that I am a sinner, just like you are, saved by the grace and mercy of Jesus. I just want to kind of give that disclaimer out there first before I launch into this illustration, okay? I I tend to be really, really, really uh, self-focused and self-centered. Right, so I recognize this fault in me, but the hard and difficult question I have to ask is what's really going on inside of me that causes me to be like this, where it makes me want the world to kind of revolve around me. And anytime somebody, namely my wife Robin, points out my, my selfishness, I tend to go on the defensive. I'm, I'm very good. When I listen, I'm very good at creating lists of ways that I'm not selfish. Well, but baby, I do this and I do that. Right, I'm, I'm, what I'm doing is I'm justifying. My inner lawyer comes out and I defend my actions or my motivations. I don't even put a spiritual twist on them and make them sound real Jesus-y. I'm good at that. I'm good at, you ask her, man. I, I can do I, I do it with the best of She's back there laughing. She knows it's true, right? But, but here, here's, here's, the, here's the thing, man. But lately, lately, my selfishness has reared its ugly head. You see, I have a tendency, and and this may not sound like a big deal to you, but I'm telling you, it's a huge deal because there's something deeper going on inside of me. You see, I have a tendency to schedule things on a calendar or plan events. And and in my line of work, we're at youth ministry, you know, I plan a lot of events and put things on the calendar without considering my wife or taking into account her needs. Uh, You you Liberty boys, listen up here, okay? When you get married, you get to take notes here, okay? (laughs) All right? And she will either find out about these things, okay, one of two ways, okay? I'll either say, hey, babe, by the way, I've got this coming up just to let you know. <laughs> not a good idea, right? Not, not a good idea. But here's the worst, okay? The worst is, and this, this has happened just recently, the worst is uh, when she finds out from someone else about an event that I've planned. Like just recently, I planned a camping trip out at the Grubs. And we're sitting in a small group at my house, and my good buddy Chris Higgins says uh, something like, oh, so you guys are camping out at the Grubs. Like, he knew. He knew. And my wife looks at me, and she's like, what? What? You're camping out? She says I do this because uh, she knows in front of people that she won't kill me. (laughs) Right? So you can see how this creates tension and communication breaks down in our relationship. So a couple weeks ago, I'm sitting at my counselor's office, because I need all the help I can get. I'm just going to be honest. And she starts kind of probing around, and she starts getting to that point of me starting to feel that embarrassing moment, you know, that, that, ugh, that kind of cringe, because she's trying to get to the bottom of why my world revolves around me. And this is what she said. I, I said, you tell me, Sandy. I, I don't know. You tell me. And this is what she said to me. She said, Aaron, You believe in the biblical principles of family first. You believe in those things. You teach them, you believe them. You believe in those principles of considering others before yourself. But your problem is they're not convictions. Man, she said that. That hurt. And deep down I knew she was right. She was right but I hated it. 
I hated it. I didn't want to admit it. I didn't like it. In my head, I was still trying to justify my actions. And she made me take a deep look inside myself, and I was able to see what Robin likes to call the ugly. The ugly. See, I think we struggle to get to beneath the surface and do the hard work of looking deep within us, and so we tend to buy into this delusion that our biggest problem is not in us, but it's outside of us. Whatever it is you're struggling with, whatever you're dealing with at home or work, we buy into the delusion that our biggest problem is outside of us. You know, like my anger issue is because of you, or it's because of my work, or it's because of the kids. Or my lust issue is because we live in an over-sexualized culture. And see, all that sounds right. I mean, that sounds right. That sounds good. It sounds good. But it's not the truth. You see, the Bible says the problem is not outside of you, but the problem is inside of you. It's our heart. And sin is the issue. Sin is the problem. Sin is our act of rebellion against a holy, righteous, and just God. You see, because of sin, our natural tendency is to pursue our own selfish desires. Sin causes us to buy into the delusion that our problem is outside of us. You see, sin is self-seeking. Sin has made our hearts dirty. Now, now the Bible is going to describe the heart of man as the whole inner person. The heart is what drives your actions. It's what drives your motivations. It's what guides you. And the Bible says, this is what Jesus says, Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jeremiah 17 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You see, it's easier to blame others or outside circumstances because that way we never have to look at the ugliness in our own heart. It's just easier to do that. And when someone really starts to go meddling in there, or there's somebody who starts to kind of probe beneath the surface, when someone goes after the heart to get to our real motivations, it creates in us an anxiety and a hostility, not only towards others, but hear me out here, towards God himself, towards God himself, because we are trying to be found righteous on our own. Trust me, I know. That's why I create that list. That's why I make it sound Jesus-y. I'm trying to create and justify my own righteousness. Romans chapter 8, verse 7 says it best. For the mind that is set on the flesh, the sinful nature, is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot do it. Because of sin, the nature of the human heart is animosity, anger, and hostility toward God. And this is exactly what's going on in this parable. Jesus has gone meddling into the religious leaders' hearts. But that's what Jesus does. He's not after your behavior. He relentlessly pursues our hearts. The religious leaders are giving Jesus the business, and he tells them, he says, you know what, guys, you say you serve God. You say that you love God. You create rules and standards to live by. You say you read your Bible, and that you pray, and that you fast, and that you don't drink, that you don't watch rated R movies, that you don't cuss, right? And you do a great job of putting on a show, but deep, deep down, you hate 
God. You see, Jesus has exposed their hearts. He exposed their true motives, and it evokes anger in them. I mean, they want to kill him. They want to kill him. And so the question for us this morning is, how do we respond to this parable? What is our reaction to Jesus' parable? Well, I want us to examine three relationships in the parable, and we're going to break those down. But first, let's look at the relationship between the tenants and the owner. The tenants and the owner. It's pretty self-evident, and there's not much of a culture gap for us today. So we, we, we should be able to understand this pretty easily. But the relationship between the tenants and the owner is they must tend, they must work the owner's vineyard. You see, it says that a man bought a vineyard. He invested in the vineyard. He planted the vineyard. And then he goes on a journey and leaves a group of hired tenant farmers to work it. Now, we understand that in today's world, if you want to own a business, you are the one who is investing in that business. You're the one that has to uh, front the money and the cost of that business. And you're the one who is taking the risk with that business. And obviously, the goal for any business owner is to make money off of his investment. And so the tenant's job is to work the vineyard in a particular way. They can't just go in there and work it any old way that they want, but they have to work it by the owner's word and for the owner's profit. By his word and for his profit means they have to find out what his policies and procedures are. Like you can't just go into work tomorrow and tell your boss, hey, I'm going to do this instead of what you told me. I mean, I guess you could, but then you probably wouldn't have a job, right? You know, you just can't do that. You can't do that. You have specific guidelines that you have been set by the owner, by the employer. And when you perform your job well, you get paid and the owner gets a profit. And so the tenants have to work the vineyard by the owner's word and for his profit. Now, the main thrust of Jesus' parable is directed towards the religious leaders of Israel. And if you're not familiar with your Old Testament, and, and, and maybe you're not, and that's fine, but if you're not familiar with your Old Testament, it was common in the Old Testament for the prophets of God, people who spoke on God's behalf, to call Israel God's chosen people. Right? Israel was God's chosen people. To call Israel his vineyard. And so this vineyard represents Israel, God's chosen people. Isaiah 5.11 uh, kind of talks about that, but it's all throughout the Old Testament. So God has given Israel many things in the Old Testament. And the religious leaders were supposed to encourage and to lead and to teach God's people in the way of truth and light. They were the tenants. It was their job to govern God's people, his vineyard, by God's word and not according to their own religion and tradition. It was their job to govern Israel for God's profit, for God's glory, and not their own power and prestige. You guys, that's right, you guys make, that makes sense? You guys following me so far? All right? So what's this got to do with us? Okay, let's bring it, bring it to Chester, Virginia here. All right? Well, let me ask this question. What does our life consist of? Think about it. We've got talents. Every one of us in here have talents. We've got gifts. Man, we've got creativity. All of us have a certain amount of influence in this room. We've been given a certain amount of possessions. And even the breath in our lungs today, right, the air that you are breathing is from God. And so we can't look at these gifts from God and think that we are owners 
of any of it. We must look at our lives as though we are tenants. And so what you see happening in this parable is that the tenants begin to act like owners. They think they are owners. The religious leaders were serving God for their own benefit. They were only concerned for their image. See, our culture and all the self-help books don't help because they tell you that you have to be your own boss. Do what makes you happy. You are in charge. You are in control of your life. You've earned it. You deserve it. And the Bible says, no, no, you're a tenant, and everything is a gift from a gracious and merciful God. And like the religious leaders of Jesus' day, we don't like to hear this. And the reality is we live in the delusion of independence and self-sufficiency when in reality our true nature is dependence. It's dependence. The Bible says we are like sheep without a shepherd. We are helpless. What happens to a sheep if it's left on its own without a shepherd? What happens to it? It gets devoured by wolves, right? It's going to get killed. It's going to get hurt. I think about my four-year-old son, Jude, who's at this stage of wanting more and more independence. You guys know that stage, man, where like, you can't do anything for them, but they've got to do it themselves. Like, he wants to get milk. And so he wants to open up the refrigerator door, get that big gallon of milk, and he wants to pour. <laughs> yeah. And I sit there and I watch him, man, as he is like struggling and as he is fighting for this. And you can just see it inside of him, man. He wants this independence. He wants this self-sufficiency. And I just stand back and I just wait until he finally gives up, you know. And then I can go in there and help him. But see, we don't want to have that image of independence and self-sufficiency shattered. We want to be right. We want to be in control. We want to use our gifts and talents and resources for, the, for our own glory rather than for the glory of God. See, we need to constantly be reminded that we are not owners, but that we are tenants. Now, this plays out in everyday life. I mean, we could give a bazillion examples here. I mean, church could be an example. You know, we can, we can get this mindset that, that, that church is about us and what we want. And we can begin to act like owners, you know what I mean, rather than tenants. Or in your work, in your workplace, you know, you get a raise or you get a promotion and you can, maybe you don't come out and say it, but you have this tendency because of our sinful nature to kind of look down on others, right? Like, like you're superior, you know what I mean? Right? I mean, nobody here is going to say that, right? Nobody's going to say, oh, yeah, I've done that before. But it's in us. It's what we do, Right? And so this plays out in, in all kinds of different ways. And, and, and the reality of it is we just need to, to be constantly reminded that we are tenants. What we need is to be rescued from ourselves is what we need. Now, the second relationship is that the tenants and the messengers. As the owner sends messengers to the tenants, the tenants beat and abuse them. I mean, what's that about, right? Well, again, the immediate idea of the parable is to remind the religious leaders that God continually sent prophets over the years to tell them that they have been working the vineyard of Israel, not by his word or for his prophet. See, if we read through the Old Testament, you would see that God's prophets were beaten, they were mistreated, and some of them were even killed. And so what's this mean for us today? Well, the good news this morning for us is that God is very patient with us. I mean, if anything, get that from this parable, that God is patient with us. The Bible says he is very patient with us. He does not want anybody to perish, but for everyone to repent and come to know his son, 
Jesus. So we see God that he is very patient. We see a God who is pursuing after us. Man, that is, that is awesome. That is awesome. He is pursuing a relationship with you and with your neighbor and coworker and family member. Now let me ask this question. Do you guys realize that God still sends messengers today into our lives? Do you guys realize that? Do you realize that God uses the Holy Spirit to speak through messengers into your lives? Who has God sent into your life recently? For me, and, and probably uh, most of us in this room, one of the messengers has been a parent. I mean, if you're in church today, if you grew up in church today, one of those messengers was either both parents or one of those parents. And personally, I'm thankful for my mom and her persistent pursuit of my heart and pointing me to Jesus. I'm thankful that she didn't give up on me when I was being a know-it-all, I've got everything together teenager. You know what I mean? I'm going to tell you something, man. I, 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 she was a messenger from God. I beat that woman down. Not literally. Not literally. I didn't, just, I didn't do that. But I mean, I, I caused that woman a lot of heartache, man. I caused that. I mean, she, I, she paced the floor, you know, at night and just be praying for me and just continue to persist and pursue and I fought it, and I fought it, but I'm so glad, so glad that she did not give up on me. I'm so glad that God used her. I'm thankful for godly men like George Velosh and Eddie Smith who were used by the Holy Spirit to consistently remind me that I'm not an owner, but I'm a tenant. For some of you, it may be a church or it may be a specific ministry, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, God has used these messengers to speak into your life the truth and to break down that hard wall of your heart. I'd have to say that I'm most grateful and thankful for my wife. Man, she is just an amazing woman. She is full of wisdom, and she is just absolutely brilliant. Brilliant. And more often than not, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, man, she will speak into my life. She'll cause me to examine the ugliness of my dirty heart. I mean, she just gets real with me. She just gets real. And it's hard. And it's not a fun process. And I hate it. And I'll fight it. But it's necessary. And the beauty of the gospel is that it will expose the wickedness in our hearts. And it will drive us to our need for Jesus. And I'm going to tell you something, man. That will set you free. It will set you free. When you are able to come to the realization of your sin and how ugly it can be, man, it just frees you up to rest in the work in person of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us on the cross. Amen? I mean, think about this, right? Jesus lived the perfect life because we couldn't. He died on the cross for our sins. And that frees us up, man, to not have to act like we have it all together. And it liberates us. And it's good news. God accepts you not for your righteousness, but solely by Jesus' righteousness in your place. I said, please see God's patience this morning. Please, please be attentive to God's messengers in your life. Those messengers, man, that's God's grace. It's God's grace. Finally, what about the relationship between a tenant and the son? I mean, this is, this is so good. And in the parable, we see that every time God sent messengers, the tenants would get a little bit meaner. It's as if they, the more messengers that God sent, the more the tenants' uh, hostility and anger grew within them. And finally, the son shows up, and all that growing hatred gets directed toward the son, and they kill him. And listen, the Bible teaches us 
that underneath all of our inhumanity towards each other, underneath all of our complaints about how unhappy we are with life, and underneath all of our self-pity is an anger towards God. Because the reality is that the one time in human history that God made himself physically vulnerable, he was criticized, he was kicked, he was mocked, and he was beaten, and he was killed. Listen, in John 15, Jesus tells his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. And we cannot and will not admit our hatred of the control of God over our lives unless, unless there is a supernatural intervention by the Holy Spirit. Listen, I'm telling you, this is why I pray every time I get up here. God, help us see ourselves for who we are, the ugliness in us, and help us to see you for who you are. I pray that that drives us to Jesus because we need him. We can't do it. You see, it takes the Holy Spirit working in our hearts for us to see that sin is not just a violation of this action or that action, but rather sin is an attitude of resentment toward the claim of Jesus over your life. We fight Jesus for control. We don't like to be told that we're wrong. And if we're not careful, we can fall into the same trap the religious leaders fell into. And that is, we can set up our own standard of righteousness, our own set of standards and values, We can set up our own rules, and we can simply live to try and avoid sin. And I think that that's what a lot of churches do today. I really do. And it's called behavior modification. See, the problem is we can't change behavior unless we get to the root of the problem, which is our heart. That's why Jesus pursues our heart. If he can change our heart, then behavior is going to change. And when we do this, when we act like this, when we create our own set of rules, when we try to defend our own righteousness, what we're doing is we're minimizing the cross of Jesus. The cross of Jesus is really small to us. Because what we're saying is, you know what, I don't need to be saved by your grace. Because we're trying to defend our own righteousness. In the parable, Jesus quotes from Psalm 118, he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus is the stone. He is the rock. He is the foundation. He is the center. He is a stone on which you can either build on or if you reject it, it will crush you. Jesus is killed on the cross out of hatred and hostility. But the good news of the gospel is this. I hear this. This is awesome. Are you ready? This is the kicker. God, in his patience, And in his love and pursuit of us has broken down the walls of that hostility between us through the death of Jesus on the cross. Our relationship that was broken by our rebellion and sin has been restored through Jesus. You've got to see this. The very hatred that we have for Jesus, the hatred that sent Jesus to the cross is the very way in which God slays the hatred between us and him. How brilliant is that? How awesome is that? Does that, does that get you excited? Listen to Ephesians 2.16. It says, on the cross, though we were enemies, we hated God. We were objects of his wrath. God restores us by destroying the hostility. Simply put, 
Jesus became the enemy in our place. Man, that's good news. Amen? You guys awake? I said, uh, Jesus becomes the enemy in our place. God made Jesus the enemy for us. 2 Corinthians 5 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might be restored back to God. Man, that's good news. That is what the gospel is. It's the proclamation of good news. That we need Jesus. And Jesus says, if you don't admit this, you will stay an enemy and you'll be crushed by the stone. But if you admit that you're an enemy, if you will do the hard work of of looking deep inside, beneath the surface, as painful as it may be, then you'll no longer become an enemy. You'll no longer be an enemy. You'll be saved by the blood of Jesus and your life will be a building stone. Listen, I want you to know that Jesus died for you. Jesus willingly became an enemy and was treated like an enemy so that we could be called friends of God. And what I want us to do this morning is um, every single week here at Chester Christian, we um, take communion. And it's, 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 it's the Lord's Supper. It's the last night uh, before we went to the cross. He instituted this, this meal. And in just a few minutes, the men are going to pass around a tray of bread and a tray of juice. And that bread represents the body of Christ. It represents the body that was broken on the cross. And the juice represents the blood that was shed for us. And what I want you to do during that time is I want you to do some self-examination. I just want you to think about your life, what you have. How are we acting like owners? What messengers is God sending into our life that we're just kind of beating down? Are we willing to admit our need for Jesus? Think about that as you take the bread and the juice in your hand. The band's going to come up and they're going to play uh, instrumentally uh, while you guys do that. And after a few minutes, then they're going to uh, lead us in a song. And then we'll chat a little bit more after that. All right, so let's pray. God, I just thank you for this parable. I thank you for, man, I just thank you for your patience. I thank you for your pursuit of us, God, that you pursue us and desire a relationship with us. Father, I pray that during this time we would just do some self-examination, God, that we would Allow the gospel to just expose the wickedness in our hearts. God, that we would just be freed up from this burden and that we would admit our need for you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.